I really did not want to follow that. <laughs> Whenever I see young people do what these young people just did, Whenever I hear young people talk about the things that God's stirring up in their heart and they begin to, with their mouths and their lives, proclaim and declare the things of God's kingdom, my heart just leaps within me. Because as long as there is a generation that praises Jesus, as long as there's a generation that declares his word, there is hope for this world. Hallelujah. Father, in the mighty name of Jesus, in the name that is above every name, in the name that transcends generations, in the name that is greater than any kingdom of this world, in that name, King Jesus, we ask that this morning you open our ears to hear the word of the Lord and that we would not just be hearers of your word, but that we would become doers of your word. That, Father, we would commit our lives to walking out the excellency and the holiness of who you are, that your name might be glorified in all the earth. For it is in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. There is, from the 20th century, a variety of preachers that I consider to be outstanding because they have so spoken and ministered and touched my life. One of those preachers is a gentleman by the name of S.M. Lockridge. Now, S.M. Lockridge has gone home to be with Jesus. Most of you, if you did know him, you would know him because of his message, that's my Jesus. And sometimes we'll play clips of that for um, Resurrection Sunday or Good Friday. But S.M. Lockridge said that every sermon ought to have three elements. Every sermon ought to have an element of teaching. When you hear preaching, you ought to learn something. And not learn something irrelevant, but you ought to learn something about God, about his word, about his kingdom. Every sermon ought to have an element of teaching. Every sermon ought to have an element of correction. And we might even want to say challenge. As most, as most of us know, correction doesn't feel good. It's not easy. But when we're corrected, then we can learn to do things right. So even correction has this beautiful, positive element to it. Because God only corrects those whom he loves. The third element is that it ought to have an inspirational tone to it. That when you hear the word preached, it ought to inspire you. It ought to inspire you to love Jesus more. It ought to inspire you to want to walk in his ways. It ought to inspire you to want to dig deeper into his word. So it is my prayer this morning that in the few moments that we have together, that you will hear something that will teach you, that you will hear something that will correct you, and that you will hear something that will inspire you. And that is my deepest heart and desire this morning as I bring this message to you. At the first of the year, Pastor Dan shared with us that the word that God had dropped into his heart for 2021 was simply this, wake us up. And one of the things that we've been called to wake up to is unity. If you have your Bible or if you want to follow me along on the screen, John chapter 1, excuse me, Revelation chapter 1, who was written by John, Revelation chapter 1, verse 9, simply says this, I, John, 
your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation, the kingdom, and the perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now John also wrote in the gospel that bears his name, chapter 17, verses 20 and 21, this is the high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Unity is never an easy topic to talk about. It's not easy to describe, and it's even more difficult to walk it out in your life. Real unity is unnerving, and it's even fear-provoking to most of us, because genuine, biblical, godly unity will inevitably limit my personal, selfish concept of freedom and choices. But then the truest freedom of all comes from the strength that is only found in Christian unity. The thing that we desire the most, that connection to more or to other human beings, that connection to God, the thing that we desire the most will oftentimes cost us the fleshly, carnal ideals and elements of our own nature. If we are going to live in unity, first and foremost with God, there are certain requirements and expectations. If we're going to live in unity with other people, starting with the person that you're married to, to the family unit and the local church, it will require that you lay down some selfish, carnal agendas and desires. Throughout the Bible, Old and New Testament, many words are used to describe unity. One, together, partaker, community, communion, harmony, synchrony, unit, solidarity, joined, partner, and those are just to name a few. The concept of unity, the idea of unity is so big and so all-encompassing that we need multiple words or a plethora of words to begin to describe it. I want to start this morning by telling you what unity is not. Because one of the things that has caused us to back away from a concept of unity is that we have the wrong concept of unity. Unity is not conformity. Unity is not uniformity. The moment that unity is forced, it becomes something other than unity. It becomes oppression and bondage. If someone says, we are going to force you to conform, we are going to force you to become uniform, that is not unity and it's certainly not freedom. Because unity has to come out of the heart of the follower of Jesus. It has to be anointed by the Spirit of the living God. Unity, true biblical unity, can only come when we are under the government of God. There are two basic building materials that are used in the Old Testament in particular. One is brick and the other is stone. God does not use bricks 
to build. Because bricks are man-made. Bricks are uniform. The next brick looks like the last brick. And bricks are held in place by an unnatural construct, tar or mortar. They're held in place in some sort of contrived fashion and forced bonding. This is what ancient brick would look like. This picture is taken from some Mesopotamian buildings, and you can see that most of these bricks, they're made of mud, and every brick looks like the other brick. And then they're held in place by mortar or by pitch or tar. When God builds, especially throughout the Old Testament, when God builds, he builds with uncut, unhewn stone so that no two stones are the same. Hallelujah. The stones are placed with other stones, and there's no man-made glue that holds one stone atop of the other. Just the elements in general working and making those stones fit together. This is what the body of Christ is. We are not bricks put together with mortar. We are living stones put together by the Spirit of the living God. No two of us are the same. Unity does not require sameness. As a matter of fact, the freedom that God gives to us is a freedom that allows us to be fully who we are. God has never required for me to be someone that I'm not. By my very nature, I am outgoing. I am an extrovert. I'm a little on the assertive side, to say the least. I'm vocal. That's who I am. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, that's who I am. God has never asked me to be anything or anyone other than just me. And I look out at you this morning. You are all different stones, different sizes, different giftings, different backgrounds, different stories. But yet you are all stones that have been born by the Spirit of God. And now you come together to build that temple of the living God. That's unity. Unity doesn't mean I have to become like everyone else. Unity means I am who I am, and I find that place in the body of Christ where I fit, and I just be who God called me to be. What freedom and what validation. I know that there are some of you in this house this morning that you have felt like for your entire life, people all around you, institutions, have tried to force you to become someone that you are not. Quiet when you're loud, loud when you're quiet, sensitive when you're not, bold when you're not. God says, be who you are in Christ Jesus. Do not be sinful and do not misunderstand anything that I'm saying to contribute to a sinful lifestyle. Be who you are in all the righteousness that God allows and prescribes according to the pages of Scripture. In John 17, 21, we're told that unity is important because Jesus says that they all may be one. Unity is not just an idea that God had. Unity is important to the things of God's kingdom as well as to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. If Jesus in his high priestly prayer said, Father, I want them to be one like we are one, that tells me a couple of things. It tells us, number one, we ought to look at unity as something that's very important. Because if it was important enough for Jesus to ask the Father to make it happen, it should be important to us. Second thing that we should see in this 
is that everything that Jesus prayed and everything that Jesus asked for, he did it according to the will of the Father. So if he said, Father, make them one, it is the will of God for the church of Jesus Christ to be unified. Not just in the local body, but the church of Jesus Christ. That we should be together. It's important. It's an imperative. The body of Christ, in chapter 4, verses 1 through 6 of Ephesians, Therefore I, and this is Paul, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It's important. It's an imperative. An imperative is a command. We aren't just suggested to move toward unity. We are commanded to move toward unity. There's one body, one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Unity is important. Unity is an imperative. Unity has to be intentional. You do not accidentally stumble into unity. In May, May 15th, as a matter of fact, Stuart and I will celebrate 22 years of being married. Hallelujah. All, all I can say is that my husband is one of the greatest men in the world because he has put up with me for 22 years. In Acts chapter 2, verse 1, you know the story. When the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all together in the upper room. They didn't accidentally stumble into the upper room. They didn't just, somebody had a good idea, hey, let's just a couple of us go meet in the upper room. No, ever since the ascension of Jesus, they've been meeting in this place, praying and seeking the face of the Father. They've been together. They've been unified, and it's been intentional. And when they came together, there came a sound from heaven like that of a mighty rushing wind. And the Holy Spirit moved into the room where they were, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. You want that kind of an encounter with God? You want the Holy Spirit to come like a rushing wind? Do you want a sound from heaven to invade time? Then let's come together. Six o'clock tonight, let's come together for prayer. 6.30, Wednesday night, let's come together for choir, for children's ministry, for Wednesday Night Live. Let's come together because it has to be intentional. It's not abstract. It's not random. It's a decision that you make. I will be intentional about getting together with the body of Christ to lift my voice in prayer, to lift my voice in worship, and to seek the face of the Lord. In the book of Revelation, where I take my actual passage, chapter 1, verse 9, John's probably in his late 80s or late 90s. Patmos is an island that's nothing more than volcanic ash heap. It is not a pleasant place while John is there. There are no hotels. There are no restaurants. Walmart's not open. There's no grocery store. This man would have received his food by boat because the only way to get from one place to another on that island would be for the boat to bring it to you. 
He's addressing the seven churches of Asia Minor. God's about to give him a word for the seven viable churches of the ancient world. These churches are Ephesus, Sardis, Pergamum, Thyatira, Smyrna, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. He calls these churches his brothers. And inclusion would also say sisters, his family. These are the people that he is together with. These are the people that he is in unity with. He's absent from them and dislocated from them because he's on the prison island of Patmos, and they are not. They are scattered all over Asia Minor, but still he's calling them his brothers and those that he is together with in Christ. Notice all seven of these churches. With the exception of one, they are all full of problems. He's not writing to the seven churches who did it all right. He's not writing to the seven churches who made 100 on all the tests that were presented before them. All seven minus one of these churches had problems. False teachers, immorality, compromise, spiritual and mental laziness, and the list could go on, and yet John addresses all of these churches as his brothers or, by way of inclusion, his sisters in Christ. He doesn't leave anyone out. One of the first truths that we learn about unity is that unity can still be preserved even when there are flaws and problems. Oh, you guys didn't hear that. Unity can still be preserved even when there are flaws and problems. If it took flawlessness and a lack of problems for there to be unity, then it would not be obtainable for any of us in our broken state of humanity. Because you see, unity can still be preserved because unity's not about us. Unity's about Him. And He is flawless, and He is perfect. He makes us one. And what we have to do is lean into it and yield to it. The second truth that we learn about unity is that we discover that unity happens, that unity is developed, that unity is cultivated when we partake of the following. Forgive me for using the Greek here, but I think it's important. The first word is translated persecution or adversity or trials, but the Greek word is philipsis. Philipsis is a pressing, a pressing together or a squeezing. It refers or has been referred to throughout the New Testament as imprisonment, derision, poverty, sickness, inner distress, sorrow, and even the process of making a vessel. Remember, this word means a squeezing. Have any of you felt squeezed lately? Have any of you felt like the things around you are pressing in on you, forcing you and molding you and making you, you feel the squeeze? This is the same language that's used of a potter when the potter is making a vessel. When the clay is thrown onto the wheel, if no one ever touched the clay, it would be some sort of monstrosity at the end, shapeless, formless, with no purpose. But the master potter comes close to the wheel and begins to squeeze the clay. 
in order to form that clay into something that can be used in the master's service. Now, I've seen various people make pottery before, but one of the most consistent ways that I've seen is that the thumb of the potter digs into the clay, forming the vessel from the inside. And then these four fingers grip the outside of the clay, forming it and shaping it. It's the squeezing from within and the squeezing from without. That's identified as adversity or persecution. Everything that happens in our life happens for a reason, and it creates that squeezing pressure. Internal squeezing, emotions all over the place, the internal dialogue between your ears out of control. On the outside, lost jobs, relationships that seem to be on the brink of dissolution. Things that people say to you or things that people don't say to you, but squeezing from within and squeezing from without to make you into the vessel that God desires you to be. To make me into the vessel that God desires for me to be. If you're going to follow him, if you're going to pursue unity, there will come squeezings. Living with another person creates I don't even need to say it, do I? I look over here at the ladies of Teen Challenge. One of the greatest challenges that you ladies have is the squeezing that takes place because you all live together. And yet it's the most formative and the most liberating and the most delivering thing that could ever take place. In the book of Genesis... Adam and Eve fall into sin, and the first thing that we notice that sin does to them, their eyes are open, they see each other, but they separate from each other. Sin causes us to build walls and to separate ourselves from other people. And ultimately, sin causes us to be separated from God. But when we come into the kingdom of God, the Holy Spirit begins that work on pulling us together in the body of Christ, and pulling us upward into right relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And those things usually come about because of great squeezing in our lives, pressing and being pressed together. It's a necessary part of our Christian formation. John chapter 16, verse 33 says, In this world ye will have philipsis. In this world, you're going to have some squeezing and some pressing. It's inseparable from the Christian life. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, For momentary light philipsis is producing for us an eternal weight and glory far beyond all comparison. This is written by Paul. He's calling shipwrecked, snake-bit, stoned, persecuted, rejected. He's calling all of that light philipsis. I think it's time for us to take a breath and to grow up. I think it's time for us to realize that the things that are happening around us and the things that are happening in our life, that it's the hand of God moving us into a more right relationship with him and into an opportunity of having unity with each other. 
Thalipsis is also an eschatological statement. That's a mouthful word. Eschatological just simply means end-time things. The thalipsis, the squeezing of the last days, are breaking into this present moment of which we are a part more and more. In other words, the pressing and the squeezing that we are feeling today will not lighten up. It's going to intensify more and more as we draw closer to the day of the return of the Lord Jesus. That's the ellipsis. It brings us together and it unites us. The second word is basileia. Basileia just simply is translated kingdom. But Basileia, when referencing the kingdom of God, refers to his kingdom, his government, and his rule. There are, from the biblical perspective, only two kingdoms. God's kingdom and all the others. And if you are not submitted and yielded to the kingdom of God, then you are submitted and yielded to the wrong kingdom. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. And of course, the kingdom of man would also include the demonic arena and a variety of other things. John's making a point that in order for there to be unity, togetherness, those who are going to be unified together must be in the same kingdom. We can never know unity if we are not in the same kingdom under the leadership, the government of the same king. True and sustained unity will only come when we are submitted to the same kingdom and under the rulership of the same king. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 1-23, through 23, one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament. David has decided that he wants to bring the Ark of the Covenant back into the central focus of the people of God. Now, the Ark of the Covenant has pretty much, for over a generation, it has just been out on the periphery, staying in the homes of various people. But David has decided, I need to unify the people of God. I've got the tribes of the north and the tribes of the south, and I need to bring them together. And the only way that I can do it is with the presence of God. It was true then, and it's true now. So David thinks to himself, what can I do to bring about this unity? And he says, oh, there's the Ark of the Covenant, that which represents the throne of God, the presence of God, the rulership of God, the authority of God. We'll bring the Ark of the Covenant back and we'll put it in Jerusalem. So what David does is the same thing that an entire generation in my lifetime has done. He tries to bring back the presence of God without the government of God. He's going to bring the Ark of the Covenant in the first time his way. He's going to put it on a, on a cart pulled by oxen, followed by people who are not qualified to be that close to the Ark of God's Covenant. That Ark is going to stumble or teeter on the back of the cart. A man named Uzzah is going to reach out to steady the Ark, and the anger of God is going to break out against the people of Israel, and many people will lose their lives. In all of the Old Testament, there's only one time where it's reported that David feared God, and it's there. 
David feared God. And so the Ark of the Covenant remained in the house of Obed-Edom for many months until somebody came back and reported to David and said, Hey, David, this house of Obed-Edom, man, they are being blessed by the presence of the Lord. And then David's desire for the presence of the Lord, his desire for the blessings of the Lord overtook his fear. And this time he said, I'm going to bring in God's presence under God's government. Are you hearing me this morning? We want all the things of God's kingdom. We want the deliverance. We want the healing. We want all the fun stuff. We want the gifts. We want the notoriety. We want the protection. But we do not want his government. As evidenced by the fact that we will not obey him. We will not yield to him. We will not submit to him. We won't even submit to the authorities that he's placed over us. This is the corrective element. But I love you too much to not tell you the truth. Some of you have been missing on the kingdom of God. You see other people receive blessings. You see other people walking in peace and in joy. You see other people being fulfilled in the things of God's kingdom, receiving healing and deliverance. And when they open up scripture, it comes alive to them and it's not happening for you. Here might be the reason why they are submitted to his kingdom under the authority of his kingdom, and you are not. It's a simple fix. The simple fix is this. Jesus, forgive me. Cleanse me. I submit to your government. You are the king of my heart and the king of my life. Be Lord over every part of my life. The kingdom of God is important. And submitting to his kingdom is an imperative for us. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, Isaiah simply says, referring to Jesus in messianic tones, he says, and the kingdom, the government of our life will be upon his shoulders. Some of you are bearing and breaking under the weight, trying to dictate the government of your own life. Let Jesus take the government of your life. His yoke is easy and light. But when you're trying to rule your own life and go your own way, that's a burden no one can stand under. Thelipsis, Basileia, Upamone. Upamone is just simply a word that means moving forward under a heavy load. It's an attitude of righteous, enduring with a brave hope. In classical Greek, this word is used to describe a burden, a burden that's been forced upon someone. It also describes the determination or ability of a plant to live in a hostile condition, to continue growing even from under a rock. In ancient Christian literature, this word was used to describe staying power. How many of you can think of some people that just lost their staying power? They're no longer in church. They're no longer in fellowship with other believers. They're no longer following after Jesus with all of their heart. This staying power are, is for those men and women who are faced with great adversity and they choose to continue walking with Jesus even when they face death. 
The word in the New Testament is commonly used in connection with tribulation or thalipsis. It's actually walking through this thalipsis or this persecution or this squeezing that works upamone into our lives. Romans chapter 5, verse 3 gives evidence of that. It's the testing of our faith that will bring us endurance or upamone. Upamone, when we are willing to endure and to keep moving forward under that burden, it will bring us great comfort and joy and glory. This endurance is not just sitting and waiting for things to get better. This endurance is active. It's moving forward under a heavy load with great joy. I learned and have learned a lot in the last 22 years of being married. The only thing I really have to say about marriage is that marriage is a mystery and only God knows how it works. And those of you who've been married, you know that's the truth. But one of the great lessons that God taught me, Stuart and I spent our first Christmas in Alabama. And my oldest nephew at the time was seven, and my youngest was three. And somebody, God bless them, had given Joseph a rock tumbler for Christmas gift. And some of you know what I'm talking about. You put two jagged, dull stones into this tumbler with a handful of sand, and you turn it on. And for three months or 90 days, you leave it in the tumbler. And all you hear for 90 days is, all night long, because we're sleeping in Joseph's room, all night long, Stuart's able to fall asleep in the middle of it, but I'm not. And we've been married for a little over six months by that time. And so the reality of marriage has begun to set in. And I'm realizing that no matter how much I said I didn't have expectations, I did. And of course, those expectations are staring me right in the face. And how am I now going to deal with this? Listening to that rock tumbler that night, the Lord showed me something about unity, about thalipsis. Basileia and Upamone. When you get married, you're like those two jagged, colorless rocks that are thrown into that tumbler. A handful of sand, and we would call that life and just the events of life. And for a season of time, we endure that tumbling. But what happens on the other side, if you will stay in the tumbler long enough, what happens on the other side is that when the rocks hit each other, they begin to knock off the jagged edges. When the sand begins to hit the rocks with irritation, it brings out the shine and the luster of the stones. And on the other side of that rock tumbler, you have two precious stones. That's what unity is all about. Unity is me saying, I'm going to get in the rock tumbler with these people. It won't be easy. There's going to be things about them that are jagged and unpleasant. There's going to be a lot about me that's jagged and unpleasant. Right now, I cannot see us as we are going to be. I can only see us as we are. And not only are we banging up against each other with conflict and differences, 
Now we've got that sand hitting us from every direction because life doesn't stop. And God doesn't let us out because he loves, too, loves us too much to let go when we yell, Uncle. If we will let him have his perfect work in our lives, what we'll find is that on the other side is something beautiful and precious. Unity's not easy. Nobody ever said it was. It's not easy in marriage. It's not easy in friendship. It's not easy in the local body. Unity is not easy, but God never called us to do easy. He called us to be like Him. He called us to be holy because He's holy. We've all gone through some things in the last year, last couple of years. We've lost people that we love. Our sense of routine's been shaken up. We may even feel a little unstable right now. But if we will keep our eyes on Jesus, if we'll stay in the rock tumbler, if we'll not allow our pain to isolate us from the rest of the body of Christ, then we will find that this squeezing and this tumbling together, that this yielding to his kingdom and determining that we're going to put one foot in front of the other no matter what, if we align ourselves to his kingdom and to his government, just keep moving forward with joy, then we're well on our way to unity. And we all know, behold, how good and how pleasant it is for the brethren to dwell together in unity. It's like the oil that flowed down Aaron's beard, even to the hem of his garment. It's like the dew that comes down from Hermon. And there, God has commanded his blessings, life forevermore. Father, I ask in the name of Jesus that each person have their portion today, that you would speak and deal and minister with us, that, Father, we'll take the lessons that we've learned today and we'll bury them in our heart and walk them out in our lives. Any correction that might have come that we'll be quick to say, yes, Lord, Surrender all to you. And that, Father, we would determine in our hearts that we are not going to move backwards, but that we are going to follow you all the days of our life with great joy in our heart. Father, we are going to be a people of unity. In Jesus' name.